What are the factors making the landlocked West African country of Mali strategic for outside interests? What is at stake for the West as the U.S.-backed government in Mali negotiates with rebel forces for a draft agreement for peace and national reconciliation? Who are the Tuareg people, and what claim do they have to the territory of Aziwad in the country's northeast? How did children come to be laborers involved in mining gold in Mali? And how is their health being compromised, and what can be done to stop this practice? On this week's Global Research News Hour, we will explore all these questions with Abayomi Azikiwe, editor of Pan African Newswire, John Sherto of Intercontinental Cry, and Mektor Menta, a Malian filmmaker trying to document the abuses of child minors in Mali. On this week's program, Spotlight on Mali, Tuareg Resistance, Minor Miners, and the Geopolitical Football. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of December 5th, 2014. I'm series host and producer Michael Welch. The Global Research News Hour is a special radio collaboration between the Center for Research on Globalization and campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg. We seek to provide you with access to analysis of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our program is available from the Center's website, globalresearch.ca. You can also now be heard on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. We'll begin our show with News Notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. Independent analysts as well as OSCE monitor Michael Mochirku have rather mentioned no signs of a missile could be found on the wreckage, only machine gun-like holes, evidence which corroborates the Spanish air traffic controller's testimony who claimed Ukrainian fighter jets had shot MH17 down. Eyewitnesses on the ground have also told the BBC Russian service that they saw Ukrainian fighter jets next to MH17 before it crashed. It poses a serious problem that Ukraine is part of an investigation into an incident for which it is a suspect, when the main victim, Malaysia, is excluded. The investigation should either include all the suspects as well as the victims or none of them. But most importantly, Ukraine should not lead an investigation into a crime for which it is a suspect. That comes from the article, Ukraine, a suspect in crime, involved in the MH17 criminal investigation by Julie Levesque, posted December 3rd. Why is manipulation of the price of gold in the futures market not investigated and prosecuted? The answer to the question is that suppressing the price of gold helps to protect the U.S. dollar's value from the excessive debt and money creation of the past six years. The attacks on gold also enable the bullion banks to purchase large blocks of shares in the GLD Gold Trust that can be redeemed in gold with which to supply Asian purchasers. Whether or not the Federal Reserve and the U.S. Treasury are instigators of the price manipulation, government authorities tolerate it as it supports the dollar's value in the face of an enormous creation of new dollars and new federal debt. In other words, the illegal rigging of the price of gold in the futures market is deemed by the U.S. government to be essential to the success of its economic policy, just as illegal torture 
illegal military invasions, and attacks on sovereign countries, unconstitutional violation of habeas corpus, unconstitutional spying on U.S. citizens, and illegal and unconstitutional murder of U.S. citizens by the executive branch are essential to the U.S. government's war on terror. That comes from the article, Market Manipulation of the Gold Market, U.S. Resorts to Illegality to Protect Failed Financial Policies by Dr. Paul Craig Roberts and Dave Kranzler, posted December 3rd, originally appearing at paulcraigroberts.org. The resolution calls for Russia to stop supporting local militias in eastern Ukraine and for the cancellation of Crimea's decision to join Russia. In addition, it calls on Moscow to withdraw its troops, which the U.S. claims are in Ukraine, Georgia, and Moldova. Thursday's resolution also urges NATO members and U.S. allies to suspend military cooperation with Russia. Addressing Obama, the House urged him to review the readiness of U.S. and NATO armed forces under the Conventional Armed Forces in Europe Treaty, CFE. That comes from the article, Breaking, Adoption of House of Representatives Resolution provides de facto green light to Obama to declare war on Russia. Posted December 4th, originally appearing as a report for RT. How many Americans know that the current regime in Ukraine was installed in a very bloody February 2014 coup d'etat that was planned in the U.S. White House and overseen by an assistant secretary of state, Victoria Nuland, and run by the CIA and carried out for the White House by one of Ukraine's two racist, fascist, or Nazi political parties, whose founder and leader still controls Ukraine, though not officially, even these many months after his coup, and which Nazi party has been up to their elbows since then in a genocidal policy to exterminate the people in the region of Ukraine that had voted approximately 90% for the man whom Obama and those Nazis overthrew in February. And how many Americans know that one of the two main suspects in the bringing down of the Malaysian MH17 airliner over Ukraine on July 17th has been given veto power over the report that is to be issued from the official investigation of the black boxes and other evidence in the case? Virtually all of the news editors and producers, the news executives in America's press, know and have known all along that these things are the case because they've been receiving many news submissions on them with full and entirely credible documentation each time, ever since February, and have not made any of these facts public. They've not published this reality when it was news, though they are supposed to be news organizations. I know this, because I am one of the many independent investigative journalists who has been reporting in detail on these matters throughout this time period, and whose reports have been submitted to virtually all U.S. news media, mainstream and alternative news, liberal and conservative news, Republican and Democratic news. And with the exception of only about a half dozen obscure but admirably authentic news sites on the Internet, which is just a small fraction of the alternative news sites, all of this solidly documented information, just click on the links and you'll see it documented there, has been intentionally withheld from the American public by virtually the entirety of the U.S. news media. That comes from the article, The Biggest Scandal in America is Its Controlled Press, by Eric Zeus, posted December 3rd. Russia is launching a new national defense facility, which is meant to monitor threats to national security in peacetime, but would take control of the entire country in case of war. The new top security fortified facility in Moscow 
includes several large war rooms, a brand new supercomputer in the heart of a state-of-the-art data processing center, underground facilities, secret transport routes for emergency evacuation, and a helicopter pad, which was deployed for the first time on November 24th on the Moscow River. The Defense Ministry won't disclose the price tag for the site, but it is estimated at the equivalent of several billion dollars. In peacetime, an additional task is to monitor all of Russia's important military assets from hardware being produced by defense contractors to the state of oil refineries to weather conditions and their effect on transportation routes. And if Russia does get into a war, the center would act as a major communication hub and a form of wartime government, delivering reports to the country's military command and giving orders to all ministries, state-owned companies, and other organizations according to the needs of the armed forces. That comes from the article, Moscow launches wartime government which would take control of Russian Federation in the case of war, posted December 3rd, originally appearing as a report for RT. Russia has abandoned the troubled South Stream project and will now be building its replacement with Turkey. In what may possibly be the biggest move towards multipolarity thus far, the ultimate Eurasian pivot, Turkey, has done away with its former Euro-Atlantic ambitions. Turkey is still anticipated to have some privileged relations with the West, but the entire nature of the relationship has forever changed as the country officially engages in pragmatic multipolarity. Turkey's leadership made a major move by sealing such a colossal deal with Russia in such a sensitive political environment, and the old friendship can never be restored, nor do the Turks want it to be. It's amazing how much the West lost in such a short period of time and due to such major and totally unnecessary political miscalculations, and they owe their roots to the disastrous regime change operations in Syria and Ukraine. That comes from the article, Cold Turkey, Ankara Buckles Against Western Pressure, Turns to Russia, by Andrew Koribko, posted December 3rd, originally appearing at Oriental Review. Reports indicate Obama will nominate Carter as new defense secretary. Carter is unabashedly dohawkish, arguing for intervening before mortal threats to U.S. security can develop. In other words, maintaining preemption is an option. If confirmed, he'll hit the ground running. It comes from the article, New Boss at the Pentagon, The Nomination of Ashton Carter Means More War, by Stephen Lendman, post-December 3rd. There was a time when charts were very reliable. This changed many years ago. I was changed because if you go back to 1988, President Reagan, by executive order, created the Working Group on Financial Markets as a result of the 87 crash, otherwise known as the Plunge Protection Team, to prevent stock market crashes. Initially, this may have been a good idea with good intentions. The problem is this. The PPT has morphed into something out of the old USSR, which tries to manage everything, everywhere, always. This obviously changes the value of charts. If they can be painted, they are, then they don't show a true picture. Rather, they show a picture those doing the painting want you to see. That comes from the article, Trading Pattern in Gold and Silver Has Changed Drastically. What Happens Next? By Bill Holter, posted December 3rd. Pursuit of white supremacy, both domestically and globally, is the singular unifying engine driving the West's ongoing hegemony around the world. Reduced to the old canard of race relations, whatever that is supposed to mean, it can be encapsulated in Rodney King's much-maligned plaint, Can't we all just get along? 
certainly not amid the flood of feigned perplexion, mock incredulity, and the toxic both-sides rhetoric that still spews forth from the mouths of whites, not a small number of non-whites, at every level of society, media, and social interaction. Not unless and until white people change and begin to see the structural and institutional evil that white supremacy injects into every facet of American life. That comes from the article, The White People Problem in America, by Daniel Patrick Welch, who posted December 4th. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. Instability in Mali intensified in January 2012 when fighting broke out with the Tuareg rebel groups in the north led by the National Movement for the Liberation of Azawad. A military coup ousted President Amadou Toumani Touré, citing his failure to put down the rebellion, and in April of 2012, the MNLA succeeded in seizing the region to the northwest known as Azawad. Shortly thereafter, the extremist Islamist groups working with the Tuareg, including Ansardin and Al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb, took control of the North themselves and attempted to institute Sharia law. In January of the following year, French forces intervened at the behest of the interim government and worked alongside them to take the territory back from the Islamists. In the time since, the Malian government has engaged the Tuareg rebel groups in negotiations, most recently in Algiers, to hammer out some sort of agreement for peace and national reconciliation. Mali is Africa's eighth largest country. It is a major producer of gold and other precious metals. Could the U.S. and other outside interests be influencing or capitalizing on the instability there in order to further their interests? Joining us now to put the present negotiations in a geopolitical context is Abayomi Azikiwe. He's the editor of Pan-African Newswire. His articles appear regularly on Global Research. Thank you for joining us, Mr. Azikiwe. Thank you. Now, you've written extensively on the subject of U.S.-NATO imperialism on the African continent and challenged some of the narratives around Western interventions there. Um, as these inter-Malian uh, dialogues are at work, hammering out a draft agreement for peace and national reconciliation in Mali, what is at stake for the U.S. and other outside interests? The United States uh, is involved uh, in the West Africa region. Uh, they have been involved in uh, the Mali situation from the standpoint of uh, providing assistance uh, to the Malian army. Um, they have uh, trained uh, offices uh, in uh, that uh, country. They have assisted the French uh, in their intervention uh, inside the country uh, since uh, 2013. I believe that uh, they are interested from the standpoint of the mineral resources that exist in Mali as well as uh, neighboring states. Uh, they have a lot at stake uh, because it is the objective of the uh, U.S. foreign policy right now uh, to have a large uh, military presence uh, in West Africa. Okay. Could you expand on that a little bit? I, I know that, uh, for example, gold is one of the uh, – Mali is one of the biggest exporters of gold in the world, uh, third largest in Africa, I believe. 
what are some of the uh, other geostrategic aspects of Mali that makes it so uh, valuable to the U.S.? It uh, is a very large country, and it borders uh, other countries. Uh, for example, uh, Guinea. Um, there's the border with uh, Niger. Uh, there's the uh, close proximity to other states uh, in the region, such as Libya and Mauritania, uh, where the United States has uh, interests, where they have been involved uh, in uh, destabilizing governments and uh, replacing uh, certain personalities within governments uh, with other personalities. I think that uh, the United States uh, has uh, consistently, uh, over the last uh, two administrations, uh, enhanced uh, its military presence uh, on the continent, as well as its intelligence. Uh, operations uh, in Africa. Uh, they are very concerned about uh, maintaining control uh, of the entire region. Uh, you have um, strategic minerals. There's also oil, uranium, and other uh, important minerals, uh, not just in Mali, uh, but uh, throughout the entire region of West Africa. Mm. Now, my understanding is that the uh, the those uh, the, the mineral resources are, are mostly in the south end of the country. What, what about the the Aziwad uh, area up in, in the north? Uh, that what what is where, where's the significance? What significance does that area have uh, for the U.S.? Well, first of all, um, the situation involving people has been going on now for many decades. One of the un unresolved uh, uh, questions uh, from uh, the legacy of French colonialism, and there have been uh, numerous uh, outbreaks of um, violence uh, in that region going back to the early 60s. Uh, what distinguishes the current crisis uh, today uh, is that uh, the Malian government itself or regional uh, entities have not been able to resolve uh, the conflict uh, internally. Uh, so uh, the it's uh, provided a rationale uh, for the intervention of uh, these uh, outside uh, forces, particularly France, and uh, as I mentioned before, the United States uh, is heavily involved in uh, supporting uh, the French uh, in their intervention uh, in uh, Mali. So I think um, the question in the north provides them with a the rationale for intervention. Uh, you also have um, numerous organizations there uh, who are attempting to vie for uh, influence and authority. They have, um, in fact, in the um, area of the where the Tuareg population uh, populates, they have, uh, in fact, uh, created a situation where there are numerous organizations, Islamist as well as separatist organizations, uh, that have uh, vied uh, for political dominance in the area. Uh, so I don't think that uh, situation is going to be resolved uh, anytime soon. Uh, the French went in uh, nearly uh, two years ago. They were claiming that their operation would only be for a few months. And, in fact, uh, now it's approaching uh, two years. So I don't think that uh, they really have a good uh, grasp on what is going on inside the country. And um, in terms of mineral resources, uh, they also have um, phosphate, uh, limestone. Uh, there's also a potential... Uh, they're speculating of extracting petroleum in the uh, Taudini uh, Basin uh, region uh, in Mali as well. So I think uh, the uh, actual wealth of that nation uh, is significant uh, in terms of uh, the overall West Africa region. Hmm. 
what about uh, c- competitors? Uh, China, for example, do you see any any indications of uh, you know how China is uh, uh, you know somehow uh, interacting w- with this whole situation? Yeah, the uh, Chinese aid has been uh, significant over the last several years. Uh, there's been uh, Chinese and uh, Malian uh, uh, combined uh, companies and uh, combined projects. Um, over the last several years. Uh, but uh, I think the United States is very concerned about the role of China, as well as other states, uh, in uh, their economic uh, projects uh, in uh, Mali. And that's why they have uh, stepped up their military uh, intervention uh, in the region. I think it's a competition uh, at this point uh, between uh, China and the United States. Uh, it uh, seems to take on an economic dimension, uh, but in fact, um, the U.S. is approaching it from a military perspective. Uh, they don't have the capital uh, to invest uh, in, uh, in these infrastructural projects uh, in Mali. Uh, the Chinese uh, have been willing uh, to uh, invest in infrastructural development. So uh, the United States, in order to um, um, you know try to block or, or try to shore up this gap in regard to cooperation, uh, is offering military assistance and also pulling the strings of other organizations, uh, for example, the uh, World Bank, uh, which is uh, you know, involved in extending loans uh, to Mali. Also, it's influencing the African Development Bank and some of the Arab uh, funds uh, that exist. Uh, then you have the European Union and others uh, who are involved uh, in uh, projects uh, in Mali. So I think um, the U.S. is using these uh, organizations and their influence within these organizations uh, to have an impact to outmaneuver uh, China in whatever way uh, they can. Uh, <clears throat> they have uh, also worked through the uh, United States Agency for International Development, uh, USAID, um, the Peace Corps presence there. Uh, they've also, um, in terms of military, the African Crisis Response Initiative, uh, which is uh, something uh, that uh, the U.S. has been pushing, in effect, uh, to create surrogate armies uh, throughout the West Africa region, ostensibly to fight against terrorism. But it's interesting that uh, some of these uh, so-called terrorist groups the U.S. has supported in other uh, parts of the continent. For example, in Libya, during the war there in 2011, they actually funded and armed and provided logistical support uh, to uh, some of the groups that they consider terrorists in order to overthrow the Gaddafi government. Uh, but then at the same time, uh, in uh, Mali or Niger, uh, they'll act as if uh, they're in opposition uh, to uh, these same groups that they fund and support uh, in other uh, geopolitical regions. Mm. So do you see any analog then between uh, like the current campaign against ISIS in Syria and Iraq and perhaps uh, the, these uh, Islamist uh, jihadists that uh, have uh, aligned themselves with the independence movement in Aziwad? Yes, and it's not clear if they have aligned themselves with the independence movement in uh, the north of the country. It uh, remains uh, rather obscure uh, that uh, these groups were able to intervene after uh, the main uh, separatist uh, organization uh, had uh, seized territory. Now it's a very uh, muddled uh, situation politically. Uh, there's no uh, clear-cut uh, political authority uh, in the area. And I believe that uh, this uh, is going to necessitate, at least from their perspective, 
the ongoing uh, military uh, presence in the country. And I think that uh, in the past, uh, for example, in the early 60s, uh, when uh, the Malian uh, government was very new under Modibo Keita, they were able to um, uh, subdue uh, a uh, Tuareg rebellion uh, in the north uh, without um, you know, any outside uh, assistance or interference. And uh, since that time, they've been able to do it uh, both internally as well as through uh, regional negotiations. Uh, the Algerians uh, have been involved in some of these negotiations um, uh, years ago. Uh, but uh, today, uh, through the increased uh, interference vis-a-vis uh, -vis the United States Africa Command and the Malian military, now they're incapable of uh, addressing uh, these own, their own internal problems. So I don't think uh, AFRICOM is uh, enhancing the security uh, in uh, West Africa. It's actually uh, creating more instability. If you look at the countries in which uh, they've operated, uh, Burkina Faso and Mali uh, and uh, in Niger, uh, even in Nigeria, uh, there, there's been an escalation in instability and um, uh, insurgency. Uh, so I, I think it's, happening, it's having the opposite effect of uh, what uh, the U.S. claims uh, their objectives are uh, in Africa. Mm. Now, you, you mentioned just a little bit earlier about uh, World Bank loans. I'm reading uh, an article from the Associated Press headline, IMF resumes loans to Mali frozen because of irregularities, $11.7 million installment paid. Uh, and it's uh, quoting the article says, the aid is aimed at helping the West African country return to stability after war with jihadists who seized its north. Mali is now also trying to contain the spread of Ebola. So you basically you're saying that this is all just a, a pre yes a, a, it's a pretext then yeah yeah they are um the international monetary fund and the world bank uh, were formed uh, by the united states uh, towards the conclusion of world war 2 and uh, they have not had a uh, sterling uh, record in africa at all and uh, quite uh, despised uh, by the general population there because the type of conditionalities that they impose uh, on these emerging uh, post-colonial states uh, tend uh, to um, isolate uh, people within the civil service, uh, within the uh, healthcare infrastructure, uh, within the universities and public school systems, and uh, to uh, place more emphasis on uh, maintaining those loans and managing those loans uh, rather than actually building up the country. So. Uh, they, they're claiming now uh, that uh, they're going to receive over $11 million of funds that, have been, that are going to be unfrozen uh, by the uh, International Monetary Fund. And, uh, of course, uh, this perhaps will give green light uh, to uh, additional funding uh, from perhaps the European Union and other international financial institutions. Uh, they claim that... Uh, these funds uh, were suspended earlier this year uh, because uh, they felt uh, corruption was going on uh, involving uh, military contracts uh, in Mali. But um, these are issues uh, that uh, most African countries are facing uh, because uh, the post-colonial states, uh, by and large, are unsustainable and unviable. And uh, the fact that uh, Africa has not been able to unite uh, over the last uh, five decades, 
is a clear uh, indication of the uh, lack of feasibility uh, of these uh, post-colonial states. Uh, almost all of them are in economic crisis uh, at this point, despite the fact that there's been uh, quantitative uh, economic growth. But in terms of qualitative growth, um, it's a lot to be desired. And right now, uh, a lot of the countries are facing the prospect of deep, deeper financial crises uh, because of the worldwide decline in commodity prices. Oil prices and other, even agricultural commodities, uh, have declined uh, in price. And these countries are almost solely dependent uh, for their foreign exchange earnings uh, from the export uh, of these commodities. So we can see uh, that uh, we're going to have deeper crises in Mali, uh, even in countries like Nigeria, which has been deemed to have the largest economy on the African continent now. Uh, the finance minister there uh, made a speech recently um, telling the, the people they should brace themselves uh, for uh, an economic um, downturn. Uh, so uh, it, it's really um, a perpetual crisis uh, for these post-colonial states. Uh, in lieu of the lack of unity and coordination of the economies and political systems uh, throughout the region. Okay. Well, uh, Abiyomi Azikiwe, I, I want to thank you very much for that analysis of, of the current situation facing Mali and uh, and, and West Africa generally. Th- thank you so much for being our, our guest on the Global Research News Hour. All right. Thank you for having me. Abayomi Azikiwe is editor of Pan-African Newswire, and his articles appear regularly on the Global Research News site. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcast out of Winnipeg on campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM and on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. We are also podcast on the website globalresearch.ca. Okay, so we're joined right now by John Shirto. He is the editor of Intercontinental Cry, uh, and um, we're going to discuss a little bit about uh, some of the, uh, uh, the the less prominent aspects of uh, some of the, the politics in Mali, particularly with regard to uh, the, uh, the ongoing negotiations happening between the, the Tuareg and the uh, the Malian government. Um, so, John, thank you very much for joining us. For sure. Uh, thanks for having me. Now, uh, I, I think many – I mean people who followed the, uh, well, the, the French intervention there, uh, I guess it's almost two years ago now, uh, I think that probably could be forgiven if they, they don't have very much detail on the uh, aspects of the, the Tuareg uh, resistance. Maybe you, you could help just by – you know, starting off, we could just get a, a bit of detail about uh, who the who they are as as a people and uh, their presence in the region. Uh, what what some of the the his, historically where do they fit into that uh, the, the wider scheme of uh, the Malian governments governance? Okay, well, there's actually quite a bit to consider regarding the uh, the Tuareg and who they are, and uh, which is I don't think I've I've ever seen uh, anybody really talk about. Who the Tuareg are, so it's, it's worth definitely worth uh, going over uh, a bit of their culture and their uh, historical experience to put everything in context. Um, the Tuareg are um, nomadic pastoralists uh, who roamed and still roam uh, in some respects a vast region in North Africa known as Azawad, and uh, that, that term translates to English as the land of transhumans, which is another word for. Um, um, 
being uh, being nomadic. And the Tuareg are part of a much larger indigenous population in North Africa known as the um, Amazigh people, uh, which means free people in the uh, indigenous uh, Tamazight language. Um, among outsiders, the more common, uh, the wind correct name for the uh, Amazigh people is uh, Berber, um, a term that is uh, largely rejected by the um, Tuareg and other Amazigh peoples um, for its negative connotations. Um, the word directly translates to uh, barbarian. Now, as far as the um, Tuareg's uh, experience goes, um, I think it's uh, safe to say that it uh, is on par with um, the um, colonial experience of most other indigenous peoples around the world, with one very important uh, difference. Um, the Tuareg's colonial experience began during the so-called Scramble for Africa, which began in the late 1800s, um, in which the Tuareg uh, found their lands being invaded by um, by the French, uh, and the Tuareg uh, did their best to, um, you know, kick the colonizers out, um, but they uh, ultimately um, failed in their efforts, and they were subsequently forced to sign uh, treaties in 1905 and in 1917. Um, I'm not particularly sure of the details of the treaties. Um, but the Tuareg had to make uh, concessions. And then when the uh, so-called rush for independence began, that is the UN-sanctioned process of political decolonization, the so-called last um, decolonization process under the UN, um, when that began in, in the 1950s, the uh, Tuareg homeland, um, which is about the size of Texas, um, was divided into five slices and those slices going to what is now Mali, Algeria, Mauritania, Niger, and Burkina Faso. Uh, and obviously, um, you know, the Tuareg weren't, uh, uh, <laughs> weren't consulted uh, in any way or, you know, had had any real rights, um, you know, to their land. It was just, you know, they were conquered, they signed their treaties, they're done. But as far as the Tuareg were concerned, that uh, couldn't have been further from the truth. Um, and this is where... Uh, the Tuareg, uh, the Tuareg's story differs from that of many other indigenous nations because the Tuareg um, never lost their desire to live independently um, like other indigenous peoples, but unlike others, um, they were willing um, to take up arms to uh, reclaim their, their land so that they could, you know, once again roam freely um, without um, restriction. And over the past uh, 50 years, the Tuareg have organized, led um, four major rebellions in order to reclaim their homelands, uh, the most recent one beginning in uh, January 2012. And this um, latest rebellion was led by, or uprising rather, I would call it, um, was led by an organization called the uh, National Movement for the Liberation of Azawad, uh, which was founded in uh, October 2011. And their their goal uh, was to establish a multi-ethnic homeland called Azawad, uh, which would um, um, uh, consist of the region um, in uh, northern Mali. I'm not sure of the where the bottom border lies, but anyways, it's a, uh, a fairly significant uh, region. Certainly, one that would um, you know provide the Tuareg with the with the room they needed to to, to live sustainably. Um, 
Now, the situation gets pretty complicated because the uh, MLA knew full well that they wouldn't be able to succeed on their own as they have, because they uh, failed on so many other occasions. Um, so they forged alliances with various uh, militant groups, um, principally among them the Ansar Din and the Movement for the Unity and Jihad in West Africa, um, with both who have purported um, ties to al-Qaeda and who both aspire to establish um, their own Islamic State. What would be the motivation to uh, to forge that kind of an alliance? Uh, necessity. Um, I, you know, like the, the, the Tuareg um, are, are not, um, they don't follow um, the Islamic beliefs. They have their own, their own way of doing things, uh, you know. Um, but it was just a, a necessity, I think. You know, I can't uh, uh, speak for them or what, their, or what their motives were, but uh, I think it's safe to say that it was just out of, out of pure necessity, you know, the... Um, they knew full well that the uh, Ansar Din, you know, wanted to uh, create a state that were uh, that would be ruled under Sharia law, um, and they knew full well that that wouldn't work for them because that would, you know, um, exclude their own rights. Right? They would they would lose their own rights in that in in, in that kind of um, system. But uh, the risk was worth the reward, I guess. You know, um, so so they uh, forged those alliances. Um, hoping that uh, they wouldn't lose everything in the process from from the Ansar Din and and their uh, uh, associates. And then we saw the, the, just the the French intervention in early 2013. How how did that, uh, which was framed as a war, you know, principally against uh, Islamic uh, jihadists, how, how did that? What impact did that have on the Tuarist uh, of the Tuareg um, resistance? Um, well, I think it had um, a, a, a significant impact. You mean the the, the uh, so-called intervention? Yes. Well, um, yeah, like with the well, the the Toreg were always, uh, as far as as far as the media was concerned, they were always in the background. It wasn't a, a Toreg struggle um, for self-determination under UN, under you know under international law. It was um, an ethnic separatist group. Was you know causing trouble in Mali, and they were being, um, and then they were, I guess, uh, in the passenger seat in, in many respects to the um, uh, to the Ansar Din, the the, the terrorists basically. Um, and when it came to the uh, intervention, I, I think uh, well, I see is that, like the situation was 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 really complicated, but the um, Tuareg um, in many in some respects ended up. Fighting against um, their former allies uh, because uh, you know with the um, with the collapse of the government and the military junta that came forward, um, the Ansar Din seized the opportunity because because of the power vacuum and started uh, pushing the Tuareg out of the way. Um, so that pushed the Tuareg toward to to fight um, you know with France to a certain extent. Um, but the France, but France was still going at the Tuareg too, because you know their their objective wasn't simply to, you know, to to crush the uh, the Ansar Din. You know, uh, France's objective was to um, restore Mali to its former glory, I guess. <laughs> you know, um, so uh, you know the Tuareg were being pushed and pulled left and right. Um, 
But ultimately, I think, uh, I don't like saying this, but the intervention worked to a certain extent in the Tuareg's favor um, because the, um, the French, French forces, along with uh, all the other forces that were involved with Mali and uh, Algeria and you know other forces, um, were able to um, force the uh, Islamist guerrillas out of the region for the most part. You know they re- they retook all the territory that that the Ansar Din had had gained, um, and that actually gave the ML MNLA the room that they needed to tentatively regain some of the uh, some of their own control of Azawad, uh, and that uh, also opened the door for negotiations with Maui, <laughs> and. Um, those negotiations have been have been ongoing, um, not particularly successfully. Um, right from the get-go, the MNLA uh, agreed to a, uh, a major concession as a show of good faith, uh, instead of struggling for um, an independent, multi-ethnic state. Uh, they um, agreed to um, settle for uh, a new. Uh, autonomous province or state uh, that would uh, exist within Mali. Uh, uh, John, is there an, an analog to that model that, uh, that that maybe would help our listeners understand exactly what the the, the change in the demands they're making? Um, not that I'm familiar with. No. Um, is this like a brand new model then? I I'd have to think about that for a bit. Um, I I don't think it's a uh, it's it's a new model. Uh, I think there are plenty of examples where uh, um, uh, indigenous peoples have their own, um, you know, the ability to you know truly fully self-govern themselves, like the uh, mosquito people of of, of Honduras. Um, there, you know, there's many other examples around the world where indigenous peoples have been able to um, to live. Independently, without without having to, uh, or, well, without having a, a, a noose around their neck, or without having their hands tied. Um, unfortunately, the um, uh, the way that indigenous governments are structured here in Canada and, and the U.S. that's that's not it's it's not uh, comparable to, to those governments. Um, what 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 the Mali government is actually counter proposing is is. Um, self-administration of local communities, which is exactly how band councils function, function here in Canada. Exactly. And that is a concession that um, the Touareg are not willing to make. They, they don't want to have, you know, a boot on their neck, right? They want to have, you know, their own, they want to be able to truly self-govern, them, self-govern them themselves and not have, not to be, you know, utterly accountable to the... Um, uh, to the Malayan government and the Malayan government's um, economic, political, social, uh, linguistic uh, interests, mm. and, and so that's that's where the like, negotiations are basically stuck on on that point with the Tuareg, you know, wanting to govern themselves and the Mali government's offering you know relatively minor concessions so they can um, self-administer their own affairs. Um, as long as it's convenient for Mali. Hmm. Well, it's, uh, it'd def- definitely be interesting to see how things uh, pr- 
proceed uh, going forward. I wanted to just give you a, a minute or two to, to plug your current campaign because Intercontinental Cry is uh, one of the very few, uh, if not only, publications that are uh, covering uh, indigenous resistant is indigenous resistance issues around the world on an ongoing basis. Uh, could you just tell us a little bit about uh, you know people if if they want to support Intercontinental Cry, uh, how they could uh, do so? Yeah, well, uh, we're in the process now of trying to raise some uh, desperately needed funds so we can um, keep our work going in 2015. Um, we don't actually receive any kind of funds from governments, corporations, or, or private foundations. We're, we're totally reader-funded. And um, given the, uh, the season, um, it has been very difficult for us to, uh, to raise funds. Um, you know, we've, uh, so far maybe uh, nine people have, have, have donated to us. Um, and unfortunately, uh, if we can't reach our goal, um, I see it's um, going to be shut down um, on January 1st. Um, so if uh, there's anybody out there who wants to uh, pitch in or, or even just visit our work and um, maybe help get the word out if they, if they're, uh, they see the value in what we're doing, uh, they can visit intercontinentalcry.org. Um, or and, and you know we're on Facebook too and uh, Twitter as well, um, so they can you know track us down and uh, help out any way that uh, that they say that they, that they see fit to. Well, John Sherto, uh, thank you for contributing to our program and, and thank you so much for your work and uh, sure, good thanks. luck with your campaign. Thank you, John Sherto. Yeah, John Sherto is the editor of Intercontinental Cry.
That was the song Tamiditin Tan Ufrawan from Tinarawin, a Grammy Award-winning group of Tuareg musicians from the northern Mali region. They came together in a Libyan refugee camp in 1979. This song is off their fifth album, Tassili. We turn now to the plight of child mining in Mali. Making his debut on the Global Research News Hour is Mokhtar Menta. Mokhtar Menta is a filmmaker and director of a film project highlighting the plight of children working in artisanal gold mines in Mali. He's here to tell us more about this subject. Thank you for joining us, Mokhtar Menta. Can I ask you, why, why are children harvesting gold? Why, why not adults? Okay, uh, before I go deeply, I want to say that Mali is the third largest producer of gold in African continent after Ghana and South Africa. So, uh, the gold is the main resource of Malians now. And uh, to, to, from, according to World Bank, Mali is uh, one of the most power, power countries in the world. So there are not many possibilities to, to make money here. And uh, in, uh, in last uh, two years ago, we had a big problem of security and uh, rebellion problem here. That uh, made people very power and uh, uh, activities are not uh, going very well. So everyone, what they were seeing to, to make money is gold. And there are some families, the entire family goes to, to, to gold mining. Then when going, the father goes with his children. And uh, it's not like... Uh, children have a, a choice to go or not, because there are not food in, uh, in families, so everyone needs to go work. And the children go accompany their parents to make money and to, to, to have some food. The problem is that it's not that uh, the children like uh, work in this kind of world, but they have no choice. There are not many possibilities to make all the things. Because I interviewed one of them who told me that they were in school before. Because that parents cannot pay any more the school, they need to go work with parents to make some money and uh, have food. Hmm. How young are these children? Yeah, they are from 6 to 18, they, uh, uh, 14, I, I want to say. From 6 to 14, they start... The, main, the major part of them start uh, at age of uh, six. And uh, now in Mali, there are uh, from 20,000 20, to 40,000 children who are working nowadays in Malian artisanal gold mines. They are exposed to toxic mines. Uh, they are exposed to all kinds of, uh, of injuries uh, because uh, working in the beach, is, uh, is not something that is easy. They go down up to 40, 40, 40 meters, mm-hmm. and uh, working downside, working in such kind of pits is uh, really, uh, really difficult for a child, a child like years, eight years, or 14 years. Mm. How do do these activities uh, affect 
the health of these children? The answer is uh, not good at all because the major part of them also work has uh, in, in family to, to wash the gold. They, they, they eat, eat, and uh, they get out the, the mineral. Then they need to wash it. And when washing the gold uh, mineral, they need some some uh, chemical product like mercury and uh, other things. Exposing in such kind of uh, chemical products is very dangerous because if uh, they, they, they go back down, uh, there are uh, most of them finished by having some uh, some problems. And uh, the gift is very, very... How many children are, are involved in this practice across Mali? Across Mali is about 20,000 to 40,000 children. There was a report from Human Rights Watch in 2011 uh, documenting a lot of this. Is the situation worse now than it was in 2011? Yes, there is not a big difference. The Human Rights Watch made a report. But this is a report, uh, and it's only it can be read by government and by many people. But Malian government did not uh, start a real action to end this practice. Now, my my goal is to translate this kind of report in video, in image, so that the world can see it. Because, like they the say, one image can express is, is uh, one image express real time what a, a text can say. You tell me that maybe this report cannot reach uh, as many as people who want to be involved. So when you make a movie with real images with children working in, in the mind, so that everyone in the world see. How it's happening here, I think it's uh, an opportunity and uh, it will encourage the government of Mali and even the United Nations and every organization to take action. I mean, a real action, not only saying, not only writing about it, because there are many organizations who wrote about this. There are many newspapers who made a report, who made a news about this factor. But most is happening. Even today, if you go in, in Malian mining here, we can find as many as children there. Hmm. So, with this project, are you hoping to uh, get a, a ban on child mining? I, I, I want, because I think Western wants to know that the goods they are buying from Mali are uh, mined by children. If they know it, so maybe it's, um, it's, it's uh, the, the fact is that the gold demand is very high. So if we can uh, ask uh, gold very high, 
So it's an opportunity for us for this so to exploit children's work. Maybe if the Westerns who are the buyers know how this gold is mined, maybe they could uh, stop buying this gold and uh, get Malian government to take real action against this and to make some kind of project of green uh, gold project to be sure that the gold that are mined in Mali is green, is not, there are no children being expanded, and uh, the, the, the workers in the mines are well fed, and uh, every fact uh, like this, so that it can be a green gold, hmm. like a green energy. Okay. Uh, is there uh, a lot of interest right now in getting your film screened uh, in other countries, in Canada and the United States? They are interested because Canada, United States are the main countries who buy the gold. So it's more interesting that the people from this country get interested in this kind of film to know more about the source of the gold they are buying. Because I'm sure that people are not bad everywhere. And there are the people who are exploiting the gold in the source who do the bad things. So the buyer you know that the gold he is buying is a blue gold, is a bad gold, is a gold that came from a chilled mining or chilled slavery, they, they will not buy it. And if they don't buy it, they will stop the chain exploitation. Okay. Well, thank you very much for sharing this grim story with us. Is there a place on the internet people can go to get more information? There's a website that I created, and I'm, I'm just launching a crowdfunding project in, in the Google. But the website of the project is Yeah, The second thing, that is the main website that redirects to our campaign, is www.childrenofbling.info. Childrenofbling.info. Well, thank you so much for sharing this with us. Uh, wish you well in, uh, and, and much success in your project. You've been listening to the Global Research News Hour. You can hear our programs every week on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and on partnering radio stations across the country. We are broadcast on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. You can also download each episode from the website globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I am series host and producer Michael Welch. Join us again next week.